Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, broadcasting to you from Scent City in Las Vegas from out here at Ford Canine. Welcome to episode 54, titled Cocktail Anybody? We're going to talk about odor mixtures and uh, the cocktail method and some other things to kind of... you know, go over some new research as well as some of the typical um, beliefs and experiences in the detection dog world. So before I get to that, I will do the typical um, show intro. You know, I won't do as much uh, this time about what's going on here. You guys have been all pretty much caught up. And if you've been following the FordK9.com website or the YouTube channel and all the social media, you're pretty well informed. Um, by the time this episode comes out, I will probably be in England just doing some seminars, the usual canine cognition one, and of course, our newer one, Odor Pays. So a lot of you guys send questions, and I've been doing that series on YouTube, answering those questions, and I just got done doing a new episode on odor containment. Um, that'll be out by the time this podcast airs. So if you're not a member of the YouTube channel, go like and subscribe. There's all the free videos there that cover all these different uh, subjects and Q&As that I do on that uh, channel, as well as some other stuff there. Uh, we, we do some training uh, topics and tips and things like that, and there's a lot more coming. Um, but yeah, go check that out. So uh, in that Q&A, one of the things that comes up, and I see it frequently, uh, whether it be at the seminars or the questions that get, we get emailed or some of the discussions on social media and the various groups is... Why does my dog false alert? Or how do I deal with false alerts? So I figured I'd use the few minutes here at the show intro to kind of talk about that and go over, um, you know, what are the typical root causes and then what are some options that you can do to fix that. So let's start off with why does a dog false alert? Well, There's a number of different reasons, and we'll hit the common ones. So one of the first common ones, uh, reasons that are out there is sometimes the dog is generalizing to a salient or strong novel odor in the area, and the dog says, oh, okay, this is something different or new. Um, Maybe this will get me my reinforcement. So since this is different, here's your alert or a strong change of behavior, which the handler reads or interprets as an alert and then calls it and it ends up being wrong. So that's one of them, a, a novel or strong salient odor. Another one that's common is search time. The dog gets very used to a typical, let's say, time of searching and sniffing an area and within, let's just say, this three-minute or less time frame, they typically find an odor. Well, for whatever reason, this time it's five minutes versus three minutes. Well, the dog's internal clock 
causes them to kind of have some conflict of why haven't I found something yet. So due to that, you will see some dogs start showing the alert or change of behavior, which then gets the handler to react. And when that happens, we have handlers who call alerts or dogs who give us the uh, indication or alert behavior to something that's non-target. Another one, which piggybacks off of that, is handler behavior. Handler behavior because the handler believes their dog is on odor, and that might be due to seeing the dog have a change in behavior, seeing the dog sniffing something longer, or the handler's belief that that looks like a great place to hide something. So, and on top of that, my dog sniffed it. So I'm going to hang out here until my dog alerts. And there's one saying I have those that have been through school with me hear me say quite often is it's not your job to convince the dog there's odor there. It's the dog's job to convince you. However, far too often as handlers, we are constantly trying to convince the dogs there's odor there. So that becomes a problem, especially if we know the cognitive ability of the dogs. Those that have been through my canine cognition class definitely understand this, which is the dog has the ability to read human communication and intention better than any other animal on the planet. So if this dog who is very bonded with you and knows you and knows your movements, especially movements that are pre-indicating to you maybe going to get a reward item out of a pouch, pocket, etc., the dog goes, okay, well, I will go with that. And here's my alert behavior, my full on alert. So now the handler calls alert or, you know, does their procedures and they end up being wrong. So then that takes away the trust a little bit. So the first ones, which was, let's say, the time frame, the dog's been searching at X amount of time and they haven't found something, or that first one where we have the novel or strong scent in the area, these would be, let's just say, the top three common ones that are seen frequently. There's other ones there, and there's other reasons, but for the sake of time, we're going to hit these top three. So, common thing to do to deal with any of these three is to go back to your foundation, go back to fundamentals. So, in the sense of the strong salient odor, I am going to reduce my criteria. I'm only going to have a few things out. Let's just say three or four items out in the space. One of them is going to be a very novel item. And that very novel item has a unique smell to it. If the dog does anything towards that odor, I simply ignore it. Because the right answer is literally maybe only a few feet away. We're not talking searching in a whole entire room. We are talking searching maybe an area of 12 to 15 feet. And then that space is only a few items. And one of those is the target odor. And the other one or other ones is the non-target odors. And if the dog goes or shows any interest into the non-target, you can simply ignore it. Because in the absence of you doing something, your dog will do something. It's another saying I use quite frequently. So if the dog does anything else other than pay attention or, or go to or indicate at target odor, you do nothing. 
And what the dog quickly realizes in these controlled settings is this for sure is what gets me paid. Anything else doesn't. And that's one technique at a basic level that allows you to basically compartmentalize and focus on one aspect, which is making sure the dog, despite other things, knows that the target odor is the only thing that pays them. Now, for the search time issue, that's kind of self-explanatory. But with that said, we are going to do longer searches, but my search environment may not be very complicated at first. My search environment may have, you know, let's say multiple empty rooms or uh, let's say it's outdoors. I'm going to work in an area that doesn't have a ton of items in it because I don't, I want to, again, isolate what the problem is. So in this case, it's time. So I want to have a good amount of search time. And this is, again, going to be a little bit dog dependent too. If I have a dog that can handle it, I'll search in a typical normal area. It's just not going to have anything in that search area until we go past whatever our threshold is. And that's the important part to know is where is this dog's threshold when it comes to time? Like I said, is it three minutes, two minutes, whatever it is. So we want to go past that threshold, but only by a little bit. And as soon as we do, we are then able to have the dog make a find. Here's another thing. You can do these searches with various time frames that the search is blank and it ends on a blank because part of what we're seeing means the dog may not have enough uh, blank searches being conducted and then still being reinforced for not responding, which is a desired result. We don't want the dogs to do anything. And But the problem is because many times teams may not have done enough blank areas, the dog may not know how to be right in the absence of odor. So one aspect that we do is we do a smaller search that contains nothing. The dog searches finds nothing, shows us there's nothing there. As we leave the search area, we basically have a positive reinforcing experience, which means I'm going to play with my dog, engage with my dog. I'm not going to give them their typical high value reward item, but I'm still going to make this a reinforcing event. And that's important. And I want the dog to understand that the absence of odor and the absence of an indication is still a desired response. So between that and lengthening out my searches, these are all things that will help increase the search time. Now, the next one, the third one we talked about, which is our um, behavior as the handler, we have to then, again, we want to isolate this. So I go back to a very basic form, which is our odor pays box, also known as a dopamine box or um, uh, reward box, whatever people want to call it. I basically go to one thing. And it's the one thing that has odor in it. And I want the dog to understand that if you leave this spot where the odor is at, you get nothing, no matter what I do. So as a handler, I'm going to walk around. I'm going to reach my hand in my pocket. I'm going to stand still. I'm going to walk faster. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to pull on the leash. I'm going to do any number of these things. I'm going to tap over here. I'm going to do whatever it is. And the dog will learn that, hey, I am staying at odor no matter what you do. And in fact, I pretty much don't want to follow you or, or use you for information because you're a bad information source. If I stay with odor, odor is always what pays me. So 
there's a little video that went out recently on social media where we're showing how we're doing this with puppies. And once I have the dog really good at all the different various handler behaviors at that one item, we of course then increase to multiple items, but only one of those has odor in it. And then no matter how I ask this question to the dog, what do you do when you find odor? The answer is stay at odor. Well, what if I, as a handler, walk away? The answer, stay at odor. What if I stand still? Stay at odor. What if I present over here? Stay at odor. What if I pull the leash and want to go? The answer always is stay at odor. And I want the dog to know that so that way when I have searches where I don't know the answer, the dog is easily telling me and I have a system in place that I really know well, that means stay at odor, my dog's got odor, it's very easy for me to read. Because as a judge or a certifying official in various organizations, when I watch handlers run blind areas, the amazing thing that they do is in training, they're so fast to reward and pay. They know the answer or they they feel pretty comfortable. So they're really quick at rewarding or calling alert or what have you. Then all of a sudden, when it's a test or a trial or a certification, handlers stand around and look at their dog who's giving them a really good indication but the handler isn't sure. So now the dog is basically required to have a long duration as the handler ponders and and reads what's going on. And by the time sometimes they want to call the alert, the dog moves on because you're doing stuff that's totally different than what you typically do in training. So that's another thing that we can talk about, but we'll save it for another episode is how we get to that. And I push people who train with me to be in those kind of conditions, to do those behaviors, to wait things out, because that's what you guys typically, I say you guys, it's all of us, I do it too, uh, we we sit there and sometimes second guess what we see, and during that second guessing, the dog's like, what's going on, and, and moves on, and then, which makes us second guess even further when we were like, I was about ready to call that, and then the dog moved on, so... I compartmentalize, like I said, I isolate these things and I build them during my foundations. And here's the important thing. I never stop doing foundations. And you guys have heard me talk about it, whether it be social media, the website, so on and so forth. I always do fundamentals. I do my advanced stuff and I do my fundamentals. And like I always say, name any professional athlete that does not work on their fundamentals. No matter how amazing and how skilled and top of the world they are, what do they do every single day or every, you know, hour before they go and compete? They work on fundamentals. And the dogs and what we do is the same thing. We have to go to those fundamentals because those fundamentals give us the different areas that we can actually specifically work on something, just like we described here, whether it be a search time, whether it be dealing with distracting odors, whether it be dealing with handlers. We can do all of those things and completely isolate them in our fundamentals. So I hope this little topic before we get into the episode helps out some of you guys that are maybe struggling with that common problem. Maybe this little tidbit of information might give you some some uh, ideas on how to work on that. Again, you know, following uh, what we offer on social media and the website, there's more information about this. There's more information to come um, starting in December, which will be only a few weeks away. Um, 
We will start pushing out the various online courses and many of these topics and uh, aspects will be on there. So stay tuned for all of that. So before I go into the episode, I, of course, have to give my shout outs to um, the different sponsors. But then again, I'm also been adding nonprofits because I really, really uh, think that we have to show support to some of the various nonprofits out there that are doing amazing things for dogs and handlers. So the first one here is near and dear to where I'm at, and that is the Vegas Canine Foundation. Uh, Kyle Kelly is the main individual who runs that. Um, what the Vegas Canine Foundation does, it, it raises money to help support and pay the bills, medical bills, for the retired or sick or injured dogs that work out here in Las Vegas as bomb dogs or other types of detection disciplines that are out here. And this foundation always steps up because when the dogs are retired, they've worked for private companies, you know, and many of these private companies, once the dog is handed over to the handler, they provide no more support. It's written off. It's the handler's responsibility. So what Kyle has done is created this foundation to help pay the medical bills of these dogs. And you guys will probably say, yeah, there's other ones out there. This one, the other ones that are out there are more focused on your law enforcement, military dogs, and things like that. I can tell you out here in Vegas and many other cities, these contract dogs or these private sector dogs are equally as important. In some cases, they put in even more work than the professional counterparts because of the nature of what they do. So shout out to Vegas, um, Vegas Canine Foundation. Um, uh, we want to help these dogs out. And our show sponsors, of course, this is a huge aspect for what we do here. Uh, of course, Precision Explosives, Todd Wilbur and his wife, Chrissy, putting in the hard work and, and creating some amazing training aids for us. If uh, those of you that do various different detection disciplines that require licensing, such as DEA licensing or ATF licensing, Todd has the imprint pads or the imprint odors that are the real odor. So whether it be narcotics or explosive, you can get your hands on and train on basically pure substance that is either narcotic, explosive, and there's even more. There's bed bugs coming out, uh, electronic media. He and I worked on that. There's also gunshot or gunpowder residue, um, which is really important for the firearms detection dogs. I just got done doing a research project with Dr. Paula Tiedemann, and we actually covered a lot of that. And, and Todd's training aid is right in line with what the research uh we discovered. So precision explosives, go check them out, uh, on social media, their website. And of course, piggybacking with them is, uh, Cy canine. Many of you guys know Dr. Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury, the razzle dazzle team, uh, Cy canine, S C I canine.com. They are the people who created TADS, the training aid delivery device. So that special little container glass jar with that membrane on there that allows odor to get out, but nothing to get in. If you are a search and rescue handler, uh, to be able to use your cadaver material and something like this is a game changer. You can bury it. You can put it underwater. There is so much you can do with this type of, uh, 
training aid delivery device. This, this uh, device is really helpful in a lot of things. Explosive handlers, same kind of thing you can do with that. Narcotics, again, the same thing. So go check out SciK9.com and then get sent. Get sent tubes are a newer type device. They've been out for a little while, but what it does is it absorbs odor. So you place this with whatever material that you want to use as a training aid. So think about this. If you're a cadaver handler, there's, as we know, various stages of decomposition. And if I can put this get sent tube at or with these various materials in various stages, I've now diversified my training aids because now I can expose my dog to different uh, types of decomposition. If I'm a bomb dog handler and we are deployed in a austere part of the world, this tool is something else I can place with some of the materials that may have been found uh, or prior to detonation, I could store with this material to get my dog exposed to it without having to deal with the hazardous aspect of it. So again, get sent tubes. The link will be in the show notes. Get sent is a great another tool that you can use to really expand your training and what you can do with detection dogs. So everybody who's a student that comes through Ford canine gets a sample of these products. You will get a tad, you will get, get sent tubes. You will get some of the things that we have from precision explosives. All of this will help you guys get your hands on and see for yourself all these products. And if you're not a student of ours, please go check these people out, check their websites out. It's again, it's all about creating tools for your toolbox. The more tools you have, the better off you're going to be. So with all of that said, on to the episode. Uh, Again, this is a second time I've had our guest on the show. And I will now kick it into the episode. Thank you, everybody. As usual, send us any emails you have to info at FordK9.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 54 of Canines Talking Sense. On this episode, I have decided to bring back a previous guest. Uh, A lot has changed in her life, and there's been even more research. So I figured this would be a great opportunity to bring back Dr. Lauren DeGrief. Lauren DeGrief, Dr. Lauren DeGrief, welcome to the show. (laughs) <laughs> There's your little applause. Thanks for having me. Fifty-four episodes—that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's surprised me. We're in year three. Actually, this is the actual third year anniversary as of today of the podcast. Oh wow, that's fantastic. So, yep, you get to Very celebrate impressed. this, uh, you know, with me here on the uh, on the show. <laughs> nice. Cheers. So give everybody kind of an update of what, you know, what's new in your world. And then let's get into one of your newest uh, research projects that you did in regards to odor mixtures. Yeah, great. Um, So last time we spoke, I was a uh, researcher with the Naval Research Laboratory. Um, So my background, I am a chemist. I do have a background in forensics as well. Um, the research that I have done for the last, oh, about 15 years almost, has been related to canine detection. Um, and as a chemist, I study odor. So how odors change, how we deliver it, how much is there, 
um, and what the dog might be detecting. Um, so now I have finished my tenure at the Naval Research Laboratory. I was there for almost 10 years and it was fantastic, but I am looking to expand my research a bit to outside of um, DOD relevant material. Um, and so now I am a, an associate professor at uh, Florida International University. Um, and I'm part of the chemistry and program as well as the forensic science program there. Nice. I know you get to, so does that mean you get to work more uh, frequently with uh, Dr. Ken Furton? I do. He's a very busy man. Um, but yeah, so we'll be in the same, so we're both under the uh, Global Center for um, Forensic Science and Justice. I probably got that acronym wrong, but something <laughs> something like that. Um, and we are FIU is going to start working on putting down putting together a canine research um, group. So now we have multiple professors, myself and Dr. Furton, as well as Dr. D. Mills, who does more on the biology side. Um, and we've also um, started working with uh, some trainers as well. So we'll have a broader canine program. That'll be really nice. I mean, you knew what you and I talked about this the last time we did the show and how much is changing, how much more we are learning uh, when it comes to dogs and the detection capability and what they may be smelling and what are they taking in. I mean, it's, it's one of the statements I use. It's like we've learned more in the past, let's say, 10 to 20 years than we have in the previous 100 years when it comes to stuff like this when it, with, for detection. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's definitely um, a, a growing interest in the science behind it. When I started in this field in 2006, it was it was really hard to push people into caring about the science um, and not just quoting what they've always done or anecdotal evidence. Um, and now we have a new generation of handlers and trainers that are a lot more interested in the science across the behavior side, the chemistry side, the veterinary side. Um, and that's been really great to watch uh, that interest grow and be able to be part of it. Yeah, no, I mean, no doubt. It's, you know, dating myself here, starting back in the, uh, you know, mid-90s as a canine handler and to where we are now, um, there's so much more science involved, which has been extremely helpful because as we've talked about before and I've talked about on many episodes here, there's been a lot of beliefs in the dog world. Um, many of these things were just based on experience, which is valuable, but that antidotal evidence, you know, when finally researched or tested seems to kind of fall apart, um, which is difficult for people who've done something a way for a long period of time. And for them, they see results and all of a sudden science comes in now and challenges that experience and the results they had. But, Many times I try to bring up is, but what testing did we really do back in those days? There wasn't. It was just what we were basing our success on is what we found, not knowing what we didn't find. So it's easy to kind of justify certain things when the only answer is something that you find when you don't have a test to tell you what you don't find. I think that's one of the big um, ways that science has made an impact in this field in recent years is the way people test dogs or um, train dogs or do, um, you know, proficiency testing. Uh, I think there's a lot better understanding of ways that you can go wrong and how the dog might be 
smelling something or detecting something that's not what we intended. I think there's a much better understanding of that. So now our testing is better. So that gives us a lot more information. But, you know, science is not only used to disprove the anecdotal evidence. I, some of my early research when I was in graduate school, we looked at um, human remains odor and human scent odor. And some of the projects I did was taking um, an anecdotal assumption, like human, a dog who's trained only on human scent won't find human remains and vice versa. Now, of course, there's that like little threshold right at when somebody dies, but we're ignoring that for the moment. Um, and so that was an anecdotal piece of evidence, right? Or that if dogs that's trained only on human remains will not find dead animals. And anecdotally, that's not found. But we were able to do some of the volatiles research on our side and show that there is like a chemical reason for why those anecdotes are indeed likely true. So, mm-hmm. you know, it works both ways. We're not just out there to say, oh, the old ways of doing things are bad. We're also Correct. here to say that's 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 good and here's why yeah no and and it's one of the things i remembered from working with dr hare over at duke was it's not about proving right or wrong it's seeking what the truth is and exactly and it's you know like i said unfortunately there's going to be sometimes situations where it the results of a test or research directly challenges something that was done or believed or utilized for a long period of time, but it's also been very confirming for many as well, because just like you said, there's been many methods used to train dogs for so long. Um, as the old saying goes, you know, there's many roads that lead to Damascus or there's more than a few ways to skin a cat kind of thing. And a lot of them actually, you know, by through experience, like we said, or just random luck, People have done things, and they later get easily confirmed by research and data and testing. Yeah, and sometimes it's you know in the middle where you, you kind of might tweak things. Yeah, you do it like this, but bear in mind that you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it like that. So you get something, some kind of in the middle, or maybe you have multiple strategies, and the science will tell you that one is better over the other. Yeah. So you know, yeah. No, so we try to stay impartial. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny because you guys are really good at that. Us dog handlers and trainers have a harder time with being impartial. And it's funny because I see it regularly on cognition testing uh, when we're, you know, working with people in the cognition side of things and they're playing the role of the, uh, the handler has to be the administrator of the test. And it's amazing how many little cues you'll see the handlers giving just because they want their dogs to be, to figure the problem out correctly and things like that. Um, and it's our, I joke around our bias is showing or, you know, what we're doing to try to help the dog because it's just that human tendency, you know, of wanting maybe potentially an outcome of some sort or another versus trying to stay super neutral um, and, just let things kind of happen and see what the uh, data says. Absolutely. It's really challenging. I mean, when we put together our tests, we have hypotheses. And so we have to put a lot of checks and balances in place for ourselves to make sure that we don't um, push the results in the direction of what we were hypothesizing. Yeah, no. And for that sure. the, you know, the data shows for itself what the results are. Yeah, no. And, and that's kind of what I try telling uh, handlers now, especially when we do some training. I'm going to, I'll ask them like, okay, how would you presume this might go down or or what do you think might happen with your dog when we run it this way? And, 
you know, there's a lot of ideas or beliefs. And it's funny when I do the same thing on cognition, and this is the tough one, um, you know, because many people taking these cognitive tests with their dogs know their dog. So I always tell everybody, there's a lot that's just going to be confirmed. A lot of stuff you already know about your dog that just is going to be validated. But the funny thing is, every time many, including myself, predict like, okay, I'm pretty sure my dog's going to do this. We are almost always wrong. So I've stopped doing that, even though I do lots of these tests all the time now and travel around and I see dogs and I see patterns. And sometimes I can kind of predict what I what will probably happen because I've seen it enough times. I definitely don't say it out loud and I definitely just sit back (laughs) because I'm bound to get it wrong uh, when I tell everybody, oh yeah, the dog will probably be really good in memory because I saw over here, it keeps going to the last spot that there was a reinforcer. And then of course it goes Mm -hmm. to memory and it just tanks. So, you know, (laughs) so I've learned, I just sit back, shut up and let the test go the way it does. And we get to see the results that way. So it's, uh, you know, being impartial, which is super important when working dogs on the operational side of things, you know, my saying I tell students all the time is it's not your job to convince the dog there's odor there. It's the dog's job to convince you. And far too often, uh, doesn't matter professional or sport, people really try to convince their dog there's something there because they saw the dog sniff longer at a location or... Um, maybe just due to their experience in dealing with this type of search, there's usually this location that would have something. And it's amazing how much it shows. And that's one of the main things I I show through cognition is how much that dog reads you for that information. And if your training has built a platform of your information source, the dog's going to use that many times even before going to the olfaction side of things to solve the problem. So absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. And when that dog does things and it gets off track, it can tell you a lot about not, I mean, maybe what you, what's going wrong in your training. Um, but from the, from my side, the way a lot of the time, um, I give a lot of odor chemistry seminars. And the reason why I go through these whole seminars where I say, okay, this is what the odor can do here. And this is how it can change here. And this is things that can affect it is because you might, thinks that your dog is supposed to hit somewhere and it doesn't. And instead of just thinking, oh, my dog's not working properly, maybe the odor has changed. Maybe it's contaminated. Maybe your dog has only learned the contaminant and the contaminant's not there. So that's, you know, on the chemistry side of things, that's um, you can learn a lot from your dog not doing what you think it's going to do because maybe there's something wrong with your training aid or something wrong with your past training aid. Um, and you really want to be careful that you're not training the dog to the wrong odor. Absolutely. That's not going to help you in the field. No, it's one of the pitfalls that we deal with, which kind of leads me to now a little bit about your research. You know, you just shared on social media, and of course, I reshared it on the Canines uh, Talking Sense discussion group, but it was about odor mixtures. And obviously, it's a very popular topic in the detection dog industry. And then with most, when they think of mixtures, they're thinking of the cocktail stew method of training dogs. And that's not what your research was specifically about. But obviously, you know, or you have plenty of information on both and understanding for, or as you'll explain all this, for people to understand there's different types of mixtures and 
the clarity and the importance of a process of teaching odor. So I'll let you kind of do your thing. Tell us about the research and then kind of discuss those topics. Okay, great. So I'll start with, um, let's talk about the research and then I'll just kind of see where that goes from there. Um, a little background on it. In a previous research study, so just to be clear for everybody, this research was all done at the Naval Research Laboratory um, and it was done in collaboration with the Naval Surface Warfare Center. So um, there is some previous research that I did uh, 2015-ish um, where we made something called the Mixed Odor Delivery Device or the MOD. Um, and the premise of the MOD is basically um, it was communicated to me that we needed a better way to train dogs on um, homemade explosive mixtures. So the binary mixtures, the really simple ones. So ammonium nitrate and fuel oil, for instance. Um, because when you go in the field, the fuel can change quite rapidly and they were getting poor proficiency or they were concerned about poor proficiency in detection um, when you have all kinds of different new um, fuels coming in um, if the dog was only being trained on the oxidizer. So if they were only being trained on ammonium nitrate um, or maybe they were only seeing ANSO made out of a certain type of diesel fuel and then they go in theater and the, the fuel oil that they were training on in the States was different or now all of a sudden they're training on transmission fluid or what have you, they wanted to be able to change up what that mixture was um, really rapidly without having to bring in um, explosives, chemists to oversee the mixture of the material. And basically, if you had to bring in the chemist to make the homemade explosive and then train on and then dispose of it, it was very costly and very time consuming. So the dogs weren't able to train very often. So they wanted a simpler way to train to do that training that wouldn't require so much oversight. So they came up with the mod. Um, and actually, I should say, Lucia Lazarowski did her first test on something we call the merger, which was the precursor for it. Um, um, it was a phenomenal piece of equipment. It was a little um, large and tended to fall over. So we kind of um, made it smaller and more rugged. But the idea of either the merger or the mod is that you would take your ammonium nitrate and you would take your fuel, let's say your diesel fuel, and you have them set in separate containers and you put them inside. And the way, um, as the odor escapes from the vessels that those are, that the oxidizer and the fuel are in, they escape, it mixes, and then it goes to an outlet where the dog can sniff. So the dog is sniffing a mixed odor, but uh, without actually having to physically make the explosive. So this allowed us to be able to train, or not me, I don't train dogs, allowed other people to train dogs on, um, on a whole variety of homemade explosive mixtures without actually having to make the explosives. So that's the background. Um, and we did, uh, we did uh, studies in the lab, quite a few studies in the lab. We did some computational modeling with a physicist looking at how the fluid dynamics within the mod um, and then and as well as the merger. And um, we did some dog testing and it was some pretty basic dog testing where we took dogs that were already trained on ANSO and ANAL, if I recall correctly, it's a study a while ago. So. Mm -hmm. Please, uh, I forget, uh, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, um, but we did some really basic stuff. They had only been trained on mixtures, and we showed that they were able to detect the mixtures in the mod um, and that the mod accurately presented the mixtures. All right, so that's kind of where it was left for a while. And then it was approached, I was approached by um, some um, law enforcement people about issues with detection of um, cocaine in the street. So these particular law enforcement officers were only allowed to train on very pure cocaine that were given to them um, from a laboratory and they were not allowed to mix it, mess with it, do anything with it. 
and they were having issues where their dogs, as um, what I would call, they were tap dancing around street cocaine, but wouldn't put their butts down. And so that was causing issues with warrants for them. So um, based on that, we thought, well, this would be a really good use of the mod. So now you have a material that they can't mix, or they certainly can't mix them without bringing out chemists. Um, but the, the lack of being able to train the dogs on the mixture is causing efficiency problems. So we decided to go back and look at narcotics, and then we also decided to do a more in-depth explosive study. So what we did is I took two groups of dogs, um, very different groups of dogs. So the for the narcotics mixtures, we actually used pseudo-narcotics for all of it, and I used um, nosework dogs, which are the um, the hobby dogs that, that find essential oils um, in more or less operational settings. They're very good. So we yeah. used um, some higher-level nosework dogs, We've worked with them quite a few times. It's been uh, it's a really great experience working with that group. And then um, that was for the first group. And so basically what happened is we trained them on pseudo-cocaine. Or I didn't. Their trainers trained, their handlers trained them on pseudo-cocaine. We brought them in. We did a battery of testing where they, we made sure that they could hit the pseudo-cocaine. And then we made mixtures with pseudo-cocaine and a variety of different of adulterants. So mm-hmm. kind of to mimic street cocaine. Yep. Um, and we, this is, they hadn't turned on mixtures at all. How well they did on the mixtures. Um, and they, it ranged quite drastically depending on what the mixture was between, I want to say, as low as a 17% detection rate on one of the mixtures. Um, I might be quoting this somewhat wrong. I think we're talking, no, it's more like 37% on the lowest and then going up to, um, in the 70% range for some of the other mixtures, but um, for the pure cocaine that they had trained on, they had a 90% detection rate. Sure. So all of the mixtures had showed um, a lower detection rate. So then what we did is we split that group of dogs into two, and we sent half of them off with a mod and a whole variety of different types of adulterants that they could use and had them make their own mixtures. Of course, again, they weren't physically mixing anything. They were using the mod to do it. Sure. And then the other half just continued training on their pure cocaine. So we brought them back and repeated the exact same test. And what we found is that the dogs that had trained, everybody improved somewhat, right? Because this is a, it was given to them as a new odor. And so now we've had time pass and they have more experience with the new odor. So everybody did show some improvement. Um, and then, um, but what we did notice is if you particularly look at the novel um, mixtures. So we had mixtures that the dogs had not seen before. Um, we saw a huge improvement in the dogs that had trained with the mod as opposed to the ones that had trained, continued to train to land the cocaine. And then even more so, if you extract out the, we had certain dogs in each group that just had a tendency to um, not be as good at the mixtures. It kind of has to do with their tendency to um, generalize and discriminate. So they had um, the dogs that didn't, um, do as well with the mixtures in the first study. We looked at their data aside, and there was not an improvement for the dogs that trained on the cocaine by itself, but there was a statistically significant improvement, a pretty large improvement for the dogs that were training with the mod. So what we were finding with is that some dogs instinctually did better with mixtures. Um, so those aren't the ones we're worried about, right? Yeah. We're worried about the ones that that weren't doing as well. And those were very good detective dogs. They were still hitting their targets. They were still doing a very good job. But they're just, um, that's just not how their olfactory system works or their brain process, that mixture. Yeah, they weren't so, generalizing um, it, obviously, as well. Right. So what we found is that by doing that training with the mod, is you saw a, a big leap in how they did with novel mixtures. So we're talking mixtures that they had never seen before. 
So it's not like, oh, well, I learned this mixture because I was using that in the mod. These are new ones. So this is the way they experienced the cocaine, the pseudo cocaine in a mixture was greatly improved. Yeah. Now so that was our, go ahead. No, say, so Sorry. no, I was going to say, well, go ahead and finish your thought and then I'll, I'll throw mine in there. No, I was going to go on to the second group. So you, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so many people will extrapolate from what you said as, well, that means that training, if I put my, all my drugs into a box doing the cocktail or stew method, that's what works. And I, and, or if they're the sport enthusiast coming from nose work, well, perfect. I should throw all my essential oils into one uh, containment and train my dog that way. But that, but that is actually very different than what you guys did. Correct. It is. So we are still, so what we're looking at here is really more of a selective attention situation. So when you have selective attention um, and it works for us visually too, I wish I could come up with a really good example off the top of my head. Um, I guess it's kind of like Where's Waldo for yeah. visually speaking. Yeah. So um, normally if you open a big Where's Waldo book, you're not going to find it because if you're not told that's what you're looking for. But if you're suddenly told I'm looking for a red and white striped shirt, then you can find it in that, in that you know, really complex page. So that's really um, similar here is what we're doing. And, and Nathan Hall has done a similar study with um, ammonium nitrate and mm-hmm. mixtures using his olfactometer. So what you're looking at here is saying, you will find, we want you to find cocaine. Here's what cocaine smells like. Learn the cocaine. Okay, great. Now we want to make, now we want you to find it in mixtures. It can be in this kind of mixture, that kind of mixture. And that's why we wanted to look at the novel mixture because just saying, okay, um, no, let me give it, let me find an example. Okay. So you can find it with, um, baby uh, powder mixed in with it or aspirin powder. Okay. So, well, then if you if you just go back and test that again, you're not really sure whether you said, okay, I trained the dog to find mixtures or I trained the dog, now the dog also knows baby powder. Yes. So that's correct. why we want to focus in on the novel, the novel mixtures. And, and, and Nathan did this in his work as well. So you really want to show that the dog has learned that it needs to pick cocaine out of a mixture. Correct. That it's not always going to be this like really strong, pure odor. Correct. No, and that's where I think many don't understand when you throw all those odors, whether it be the essential oils or narcotics or explosives all into one little box for lack of a better term or containment, whatever you choose to do, you are one, there's going to be a profound chemical coming out because none of nobody that's doing it that way is actually measuring it out properly to equal it all out and all that kind of good stuff. So there's going to be that. That would be really hard. Yeah. (laughs) And so there's going to be an overshadowing. So when you add a reinforcer, to that, whatever that overshadowing is, uh, that dog's looking for that one. And like you said, without knowing, you're you're inadvertently muddying the waters. And that becomes problematic. And we see those problems through training, but we never really knew that problem came from that mixture training. We always thought, because many that do mixtures or the, the cocktail stew method is as soon as they get done doing their little box, then they go out to a room that has nothing else in it and put that one, one of those chemicals, one of those uh, training right. aids in that. So then now the only thing salient in that space is that one thing. The dog goes to investigate it and then the handler steps in and tells the dog to sit or whatever they choose to do and, and reinforce that dog. So like you, like what you're saying is the same thing as Nathan said, you did it with drugs. He did it with the explosives is the value and the importance of training that single chemical, make sure that dog knows that, okay, now we're going to present this to you 
in different types of mixtures and you have to make sure that you're only or you're indicating and understanding that this chemical is still relevant even when it's mixed with these other non-target materials, correct? Absolutely. So I want to grab a couple of the things that you said. Um, one is kind of an aside, but you mentioned just putting the chemical out at the, and leaving it as the only salient thing and then your dog detects it. So that's a, that, you know, so whenever we do studies, we make sure that we use um, an abundance of distractor odors and they need to be low odor, high odor, um, because, and a whole range of different things. You don't want the dogs to see the same distractor odors every time. Um, distractor odors are really important because you don't want your dog just finding the only odor. Like you can't just put out whatever it is you want them to find and then a bunch of blanks. Cause yeah. they're, it just makes, it's, you don't know what the dog, is the dog finding novel odor? Is the dog finding the target odor? So that's, that was a really good point you made. Um, but yeah, on the stew method. So the, the thing about the stew method is that basically what happens is you get like a cross contamination. Um, so the explosives are a really good example because you have such a giant variation in vapor pressure with explosives. So um, the higher the vapor pressure, the more vapor that is going to be available to smell, to become an odor, right? To be an odorant. So if you put five explosives together and you have something like, um, oh, something like RDX um, in there that has like vapor pressure of rocks, it's like really, really low. And um, potassium chlorate has really, really low ammonium nitrate. They have very low vapor pressure. So you put low vapor pressure things in there and then you put something like TGP, EDGN, something like, Oh, nice or nothing. And there's a whole variety of things. Um, C4 itself has things that have very high vapor pressure. When you put those things together, we're talking differences in vapor pressure that make a million to a hundred million times different in the amount of odor coming off of the low vapor pressure things to the high vapor pressure things. Mm-hmm. I have this written in a book chapter. The amount can be the difference between the vapor pressure of RDX and the vapor pressure of some of the stuff that's coming off of the the rest of the C4 um, can be up to a, I believe it's 10 million or a hundred million times different. So wow. when you put those things in there, your dog is only going to focus on those higher vapor pressure things. They're not even going to notice because why would you do that if you're the dog? Sure. You're, if you're the dog, your goal is to get the reward. If the reward is smell this thing that's really easy to smell, then why? Okay. Yeah. So that's what they do. And so you put those all in there and they all contaminate each other because they're all sitting in there together. So now all those really high vapor pressure things, that vapor or that odor is getting all over and contaminating all the other ones. Mm -hmm. So now if you were to pull the ammonium nitrate out of that bucket, it probably smells like, let's say you had tag C4, that probably smells like DMD. Mm -hmm. And so you can put that out and that dog is going to find that ammonium nitrate, but not because it knows the ammonium nitrate, it's because it knows the DMD. And there's been some limited studies um, with this. They're not terribly well published, unfortunately. Um, but uh, there have been some limited studies showing that basically what happens to the dog in the stew method is that the dog learns the higher vapor pressure thing and not necessarily any of the lower vapor pressure things. Yep. So, so yeah, you have to start with the pure odor and then work mixtures once that is well understood. And you had some experience with the uh, nose work community, and um, and it's funny I see the parallels that exist uh, between the professional world that was, you know, like I said, heavily um, 
driven by the cocktail method. I was one of them too. I did, I did the cocktail method for years and I believed it worked until eventually I started testing and realizing some of the things that I talk about now. But so I, as I travel around and do seminars and I see more and more of the uh, sport people, um, they very much believe in cocktailing their odors together because that's what their trainers told them to do. And I explained to them what we just had that conversation about right now was, well, if you at least just train, let's say the birch by itself and then the anise by itself and clove by itself, then when you expose the dog to somebody else's training aids that were all contaminated or you go to a trial and you don't know who they, the judges, what they picked for their training aids and they maybe they were contaminated. But you stand a better chance to be more successful in your dog understanding what it's looking for by starting off with just training each one of those oils by itself versus the mixture because not everybody has the same essential oil or they didn't purchase from the same spot. And then as we both know, with those oils, there's so many other non-target items with high VOCs, the oil itself, that Mm -hmm. depending on what the dog's picking up, you know, you don't know. So again, breaking it down to make it more clear makes it better, more efficient, and actually increases your percentages in being more accurate, or in this case, doing well with your dog in a trial. Right. Absolutely. If you get that selective attention where they know that I find birch, I find anise, and I find clove, even if they do occasionally find them mixed together, that, like you said, that's going to help them find it mixed in oh we did I, I watched one trial where they did it in an old um like an old school pharmacy and there was like all kinds of stuff in there that had smells so if you if you're or even like a car that has like sometimes they'll do outdoor hides near cars and stuff there's a lot of odor there so if you have your dog able to work that odor through mixtures whether that because you had contamination between your three oils or because you hit it in near a fuel tank or because you know for whatever reason you've got that selective attention right the dog is looking for birch no matter what other surrounding odor is there so yeah it it really helps hone the dog in on what it is that they need to find for sure and like one of the things i like to do to kind of prove that point is i'll go to the store and grab let's say ginger essential oil and i go put that out and watch dog after dog, nail it like it was birch and it's her yeah. clove. And I, I'm able to demonstrate to them, here's your pitfall. Your dog has generalized so much that it doesn't understand mm-hmm. clearly. It's looking for the birch component, the clove component. It's looking for the oil, you know, and yeah. potentially, again, we have to guess a little bit because, you know, sometimes what did people really use when they started? Was it a Q-tip that was, you know, dirty? There's so many variables that might affect what the dog was honing in on. But the point I try to make to them is clarity. The more clear the dog knows what they're looking for, the better it's going to be. And if you can, the things that you can control are your contamination issues and what you do to reduce that, whether it be on purpose cocktailing or the inadvertent cocktailing, you can control that. Mm-hmm. And by controlling that helps that clarity and efficiency. Yeah, I think I think that it's really important. Like you put out the, what do you say, essence of ginger oil. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to make things hard for the dog. The real world searches are hard. Yeah. Things are hard for the real world. Um, whether it be because the background that you're that they're searching is hard 
because it's wrapped in something that smells, because you have adulterated drugs. Um, you know, there's a million reasons that the real world is hard. So you have to make, once your dog knows the odor, not up front, but like once a dog is very familiar with the odor, you need to start making it hard. And even harder than, it's not just about passing your certifications. We're talking like you want, I mean, especially if you have like, you know, I mean, it's one thing if you miss it for nose work and yeah, that would be disappointing. I know it's really hard to get into trials these days, Mm -hmm. but I mean, you don't want to miss a bomb, Nope. you know? So, um, yeah, it's really important to make it hard for the dogs. Put out distractors, any like hard distractors, um, put out lots of blanks. If you know that you have to, because of some kind of restriction, keep your materials in a certain type of vessel, that better be out there. Yes. And you better have blank ones and you better have distractors in that vessel. Yep. If you always handle everything with nitrile gloves, make sure you're handling your distractors and blanks with nitrile gloves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, and, and then if you do have, if your training aid, your pure pristine training aid gets contaminated, you don't need to throw it away. It just no longer becomes what you're imprint on. Yeah. That training aid is still valuable Absolutely. because real, real material is, is contaminated. So now you use that for different types of maintenance training. A hundred percent. I talk about that frequently too, as I say, a good detection dog trainer, unfortunately, in a way has an enormous amount of scent training kits to carry with them. Some are going to be what I call my imprinting and testing kit, which is the one that's as you know, clean as, as I can keep it. And then mm-hmm. the one that's the mixture kit, you know, the one that's contaminated, you know, in different versions of contamination, the more we get out training with other units and other things there, how theirs has been contaminated. And those are all relevant. Mm-hmm. Like, like you said, I tell some of the guys, don't throw it away. That's still good. You still want to expose your yeah. dog to this, but you don't want to start your dog on this. This is for that right. that later stage when you want to see how that dog's performing. Uh, like you said, and, and I love the fact that you said make things difficult. I, I have a series now called Detection Motivation and uh, Nose Calluses. And what I get, yeah. my, my point always about that is put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Stop making training about a win. It's not always going to be a win. Exactly. It, you're going to right. struggle and, and you need to know what that feels like. And you need your dog to, or you need to read your dog when it isn't easy. Even, even if there is an odor out, make it hard to get to, whether it be inaccessible or just hard to get to, so you can see what that's like. And, you know, so often we fall into that, well, I want to just run my odors or I want to, um, you know, my dog to find it and we have a, you know, I get to reinforce my dog and we get to play and it's fun for my dog, you know. Um, but if you're out there in the real world or if you're out there trialing, you need to know what it feels like to suck. You need to know what it feels like to be uncomfortable. You need that pressure because you act differently. And uh, for those that haven't seen, there's that new... Uh, a show on that on Netflix called Explained and on the series Explained there's an episode called Dogs and it has like Cindy Otto and Clive Wynn and others on there talking about well one particular aspect of that episode they talk about or they demonstrate the dogs that smell the fear scent versus the happy scent and it showed mm-hmm. videos when the dog goes up to that fear scent, how it instinctively reacts, like screwed away from the human, get you know, 
It's not comfortable. And then the dog that comes in and smells the happy human scent literally seeks out the people in the room and wants to engage with them. And so what I try to tell people, whether it's a certification or a real world search or a trial, you are stressed. And if you aren't putting yourself into those stressful situations in training and the only time the dog sees it, and I'll say the sport people, because many times the only time they get themselves really stressed is when they show up to trial. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to try. Like you said, I don't know when the next one's going to come around. I may not be able to get into it. And they get themselves all worked up. Well, now your dog smells you and goes, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I don't really want anything to do with you because you're really weird right now and you smell funky. And it's same for the handlers on the professional side that do certifications, or maybe it's a search and everybody's watching them. You know, it might be the one where the uh, undercover narc unit calls up that drug dog handler and says, hey, search this car. We have good intel. There's dope there. So if your dog doesn't find it, there's something wrong with your dog, you know, kind of thing. And there's that level of pressure that they feel. And you have to be able to put yourself in those moments in training so you can get past it when it's for real. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then additionally, if you don't do things to make your dog fail, how do you know what you need to train on more? For sure. So, you, you, you know, like you, you need to know, you want to try to get ahead of what's going to happen in the field. You need to know where the dog might have trouble in the field. And the only way you can do that is trying to figure out how to make your dog fail. Yep. And, and, and a rather, lot of, go ahead. No, I was going to say you'd rather your dog fail during training with you than fail in the field. hundred percent. And what sometimes people get, you know, cause as a trainer and a coach in a sense, for lack of a better term, my goal is to make you better, but making you better also makes you uncomfortable. If you want to come train with somebody that's going to pat you on the back and tell you how great you and your dog are, I'm not your guy. You know, if you want to get better and you want to test your limits and see where you're at and see where your dog's at, I'm the one that's going to try to do that to you. And it, But it also means you might be stressed when working with me and I will come up with unique ways to stress you out. Could be just talking <laughs> loudly, could be the environment, could be purposely distracting you through any number of things that I can be creative and think of because... Like I said, one of the lessons I learned by working with Naval Special Warfare and seeing SEAL team members train and is they purposely put them in those stressful situations constantly. So that way, if it ever happens for real, like when they did the Bin Laden raid and a helicopter crashes, that wasn't part of the plan. They continue, they pressed on, got the mission done, and were out of there despite a helicopter crash. And that they did that because they've been in those uncomfortable positions before. They know what that feels like. So when it happens, they just press on and get it done. So as a dog handler, you know, bringing it to a dog training aspect, being in a position where you're struggling, you're not finding something, or you're watching your dog struggle something, by seeing it before, you know what's happening. And therefore, you're not as stressed as you would have been if this is, wasn't your first time doing it on a real or trial type search. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's a really, it's really important to do this. Also, the one of, on the, as far as the odor side of your, your training aid odor side goes, one of the real main problems that you get is that you don't realize that your training aid is contaminated and you could be doing everything it is, everything you think is the right thing to do. But because our olfactory sense is nowhere near that of the dogs, we don't have a full appreciation for what the dogs are experiencing. So your training aid could be contaminated and now your dog is finding the 
I will only find it if it has the refrigerator smell of the refrigerator that you keep it in. Yep. So you have to, like the only way to find that out is by putting other things out there and changing things up as much as possible. It's, it's almost intimidating. Um, I realized when I first started giving these seminars um, about odor chemistry that I just like listed all the ways that odor can change and how difficult it is. And um, without giving the context that, these are, that you're never going to be able to stop all these things from happening. The goal is to understand that odor can change for a huge number of different ways. So you need to listen and watch what your dog is doing, but then also make sure that you're changing your odor up in such a way that your dog to challenge your dog so they know how to work through that and so they don't get off task and not and start locating only things that smell like the refrigerator. Yeah, or like so, you said, the human contamination or whatever else. Right. Human scents are really, really hard. Um, you know, unless you're always training in a team, you know, human scent is, um, the dogs are naturally very good at following human scent. So if you're trying to put out a search, you are inherently making it frail for the dog whenever mm-hmm. you're setting that search up. And unless you're always training in a team where some, but even if you're training, let's say you're always training a pair, now the dog has two people whose trails it can follow. So, you have to be very careful when you're setting things like that up and keeping in mind human scent. And the only way to do that really is make sure that you make sure that you make a trail to your target, but you also make a trail to um, disaster odors that are also set out in the search and that they're equally difficult to find and things like that. And that the, you vary what order you put them out in and obviously make sure you change gloves um, between that. But um, yeah, you, the, you have to know that you know you need to be testing the dog to make sure you're not screwing something up. It's so hard. There are so many things that, as a human, there are so many things to keep track of. It's not possible to keep track of to not ever ever contaminate your trainees, no matter how perfect you you are being. Mm-hmm. So one way to test that is to continuously test your dog in different ways. And if you find that they're getting off, and then oh shoot, they're only hitting on these ones, and these ones are the ones that have all been touched by nitrile gloves. Okay, now my dog is knowing nitrile gloves. So, like, you have to test things to be able to figure that out. Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the ones no. I I went through was Pelican case foam and glass jar. I mean, I thought the oh, glass jars were one. great, but I mean, they are, yeah, as, as opposed to many other things. But even the glass jar itself can create, you know, an odor that the dogs pick up on. Yeah, nothing. That, I mean, you have to you have to contain your materials. So. <laughs> You, you know, yeah. and you're never going to have anything that's completely odor-free. And then depending on what your material is, you might be limited on what that type of material is. Um, you know, if you have explosives, you might not be allowed to put anything in glass. So, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really challenging to work with what you have. Um, like the odor coming from the container that you get from the manufacturer, right? So, for instance, I order ammonium nitrate from a laboratory supply company, and it always comes in the same plastic container. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be that plastic smell imparted to the ammonium nitrate, and there's nothing I can do about it, yeah. right? I can't, I can't make that not be there. Um, and the bad guys are not going to have the same plastic container. So what can I do about that? I can take it out of the plastic container and let some of that plastic container smell off gas from it. I can... Um, attempt to find a different manufacturer that maybe at the very least uses a different kind of plastic, if not a totally different vessel. Um, I can try to train on other people's training aids. Like you have to come up with ways around that because you can't, you can't, nobody, you know, you, it has to be contained. 
And the manufacturers, generally, unless you're buying um, mimic prosciuttos, they generally don't have the canine community as their first concern. Mm-mm. So we're a secondary customer, as Michelle Mon always says. Yeah. So, you know, they don't care that they're imparting plastic smell on the ammonium nitrate as long as the ammonium nitrate works for what it's supposed to work for. Yeah, because it's designed, if it's explosives, it's their purpose is the end user being that demolition expert, EOD unit, whatever. They're not thinking about the dog handler. Uh, and, and like and most dog handlers now understand it's same with the, the narcotics. You know, a lot of the narcotics they get, even if it's from DEA, has been sitting on a shelf for, you know, seven to nine years waiting for a case to be adjudicated. And on that shelf is whatever was next to it. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. And I always encourage handlers to, um, if they have access to chemical analysis of their uh, training aids, that's great because now you can at least know what else is there. So that way, if you're working on your proofing aspect, you can then do some proofing. Like we talked about earlier, the cocaine being mixed with baby powder. Well, I can also make sure I have baby powder out and my dog is clearly not indicating to baby powder. So therefore it's, you know, my dog's accuracy is on the cocaine. So, and and that's something that I think people get confused about often is difference between proofing odor and distracting odor. And you have to, you need to have both and document both uh, so that way, you know, and I'll let you give the a more, it's a pretty straightforward answer, but um, just let the audience kind of know difference between proofing odor and distracting odor. So, and now you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not the trainer, but in my opinion, distracting odor is something that you don't think the dog, you have no reason to believe that the dog is going to hit on, but you should test or you should put out. Basically, the whole point of the distractor odor is so the dog is not hitting on novel odor. If you yeah. have an empty room, and you go put your odor out, You don't. then the dog could be hitting on it because it's a target. It could hit on it because it's the odor, mm-hmm. the only odor. So the distracting odor is there to prevent you from hitting on only novel odor. As opposed to proofing, this is something that you think that your dog has probably smelled that could potentially have learned, and you put it out to train off of it to make sure your dog is not already on it. That is how I define it. Is yep. that generally how you think of it? Yep, pretty yeah. much. The and only... So- I would say the only thing I'll add to distracting real quick was that distracting could be something like something known to the dog with intrinsic value. So like dog urine, food, uh, cat smell, things like that. That's distracting because it's not related to the odor where proofing is related to the target in some way or another. It's just not the target. But in my, now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, what I would think is once you, the dog has been very well proofed off of something like nitrile gloves, for instance, once the dog has improved off of that, I would then use it as a distractor odor. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. So you can, you know, they, yeah. Or you can have a distractor odor that you thought was a distractor odor and, oh, my dog's hitting on it. So now it suddenly becomes something you need to proof off of because they seem to have decided that that's part of their scent picture. Yeah. No. And I know we got but, a little sidetracked there. I'll say now kind of keep, you know, bringing ourselves back to your study. We, we, we've now hit all the main things about what dog people think about on, on, you know, mixtures and things like that. So like you said, you got through the mod devices and, and I actually have a mod device myself. Um, it, it's, oh, cool. yeah, it, it's a great tool, uh, for training for all the purposes you just said. Um, I guess kind of continue on where like what you guys learned from, what was the end result of your study? I mean, like you kind of hit on it, but uh, since we got sidetracked, we went down the wormhole there. Uh, I'll let you kind of finish that out. That's what happened. 
So basically, you know, I talked about what we did with the nosework dogs with the pseudo cocaine. We also did the same study with um, some actual working dogs um, that I will that will remain unnamed, and they were dogs that were trained previously on um, only ammonium nitrate and only potassium chloride. So they had not been specifically mixture trained. They have probably seen mixtures in because they are operational, but they did not use it in their training. And we had, um, when we put out, so we set this up, this is also double blind. And when we set this up with um, mixtures for them and the same, we set this up in the exact same way that we set up uh, the narcotics where we basically did a baseline and the baseline, they only got about 19% of the mixtures. Wow. And then, um, and this is, now I will give you, their mixtures are a lot more challenging than the cocaine because cocaine has a lot of odor coming off of it with a decent vapor pressure. Potassium chlorate and ammonium nitrate are really hard. They have very low vapor pressures. Yeah. And things like oil have very high vapor pressures. So the mixtures in this case are much, much more challenging. So here the dogs um, had a 19% detection rate of the mixtures um, and I think almost 100% um, detection of the uh, oxidizers alone. And then after mod, so we did not split this into two groups because we did not have enough dogs to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, we had seven dogs, I want to say, in the study. Um, so they all went and trained on the mod, and we ended up with 100% detection rate, which honestly makes me uncomfortable. 100% makes science uh, right? uncomfortable. <laughs> but the data is what the data is, and so we did end up with a 100% detection rate um, by after training with the mod, which was fantastic. And, so, and, and, that's and huge. Just, go ahead. No, so that's, that's a huge... And we did it the same... It's a huge change. And the nice thing is, is that we did include novel mixtures again. So, yeah, they, they trained on um, several different mixtures. And then when we tested them, they had new mixtures that they had not seen before. Um, and they hit those just as well as the ones that they had seen during training. So you could see just this huge understanding and selective attention to the odors associated with um, the oxides, or the oxidizers, I mean, that they were looking for. Yeah, no. And, you know, this wasn't designed to be a plug for anybody in particular, but, you know, I, I got my mod from Todd Wilbur over at Precision Explosives and he's a uh, sponsor of the show. So, um, I, you know, I, I'm sure <laughs> people me. now are, I, I figured I might as well just say it because people are going to start emailing if I don't say where we get it from or who sells it. So, um, it's a great, important tool. And as many of you just heard, you know, what Dr. DeGrief just said, to take something and get it as, as surprising as it is a hundred percent accuracy rate that tells you it's working. Yeah. It still makes me uncomfortable. Honestly, <laughs> saying the word a hundred percent out loud. I know. Right. Like, but, but you know, when you have seven dogs and X number of mixtures, it's, if I had a hundred dogs and I still had a hundred percent, I would be very concerned. Yeah. Um, but but also these are these are dogs that are very well trained. They're certified, and they um, they are they are obviously very good handlers and trainers that obviously re- recognize the deficit, use this tool to correct the deficit, and they did it effectively. Yeah, that's a great explanation of what happened there. Because, um, and that's back to our whole point a few minutes ago about training. Your training is to find your gaps and then address those gaps through your corrective action, right. whatever that is. And then that, at the end of the day, the goal is to be as accurate and reliable as possible. So 
if your training is always going to be easy, you're probably going to have some gaps. And then all of a sudden, when you find yourself in a situation where things are being tested, you might find where those gaps are. And, and now it's a little too late to figure out what to do. You should have figured that out in the training aspect. So uh, super cool that you guys got to see that in a, in a research aspect and see results from that uh, corrective action, for lack of a better term, to how they got their problem solved and addressed it and then saw the results from that. Yeah, and it was actually pretty fast, and I'm I'm trying I'm flipping through the paper right now, and I can't remember. I want to say that they made that improvement in two weeks. Um, wow. It was pretty fast. I could I might it could have been even shorter than that. Honestly, it was pretty pretty short. Um, as was the narcotics one. They they had a little bit more time, although they only trained once a week, so I think they only had four sessions. Yeah, um, no, and that's they were able to train on the mod. And that goes to those to that research that we've both seen, the training of once a day versus training once a week. You know, the training once a week, the dogs that were trained in that group were actually more efficient than the dogs that were trained every day. So it isn't always about how quickly you have repetition. Sometimes it always goes back to that old saying, it's quality over quantity. So Right. Yeah. The, uh, right, absolutely. And you know I mean, and it, if you take dogs that know that know searching and they, they know um, odor detection and training them to do something new or fixing a problem doesn't have to be that difficult. So going back to what we were talking about, about how you shouldn't be afraid to make your dog to, to do things for your dog will fail occasionally. Um, if you have a well-trained dog, the correction should not be a huge time suck ordeal. And that, you know, that's kind of what we show here is, okay, so there, there was this deficit and it did not take that long to fix it. Yeah, no, and it's and it's funny that it piggybacks on a. Uh, I did a Q and A a few weeks ago, and um, there was a separate uh, commentary from uh, another person talking about they didn't want to waste training time on doing X, Y, or Z. And the way I replied was, my training's never wasted. I always go into it with a, a objective, a goal, and a plan to get there. And so I'm, I'm always happy, even if it's the most redundant of easy things, because it's a fundamental thing or a foundational aspect of training, I'm going to do it. And I'm in, let's say we make a mistake or there's some type of, it's all valuable, all of it. And so just like you said, training has value no matter what we're doing is we have to do it, you know, and we can't look at something as, well, this is more important in a sense than this. There's going to be operate. I mean, I will always say operational things have uh, an importance, but you can't get to the operational without doing your foundations. You know, you, you look mm-hmm. at, I, I say this, yeah, I say this all the time with, you know, look at the professional athletes. Let's, let's just take Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time. <laughs> he, he goes out there and what does he do before every game? He throws the foot, just practices drills, the fundamentals, his footwork, taking a snap, passing it this way, passing it that way. You know, you could argue, well, he's so good. Why does he even need to do that stuff? He's that good because he does that stuff. <laughs> it was the That's same right. with Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, all those great Tiger, all those great athletes always do their fundamentals. So with dogs, it's no different. We should never get away from doing odor recognition testing, working on indication, doing things that are, are, are stuff for myself as a handler, leash control, footwork, reading my dog. Um, 
all of those things should be always incorporated into our training. Um, just because we got done with imprinting doesn't mean I don't go back to my foundational steps of going back to just one box, working on my indication and my dog holding it, no matter what the hell I do around it or whatever's going on mm, around it. Good point. So absolutely. the, uh, and I'm really glad that you got to, to do that research and, and share that. And then I'll find a way to share that link in the show notes or repost it on online. Now, are you, now what new things do you have coming up on research? Anything cool and, and exciting that we get to look forward to? Oh yeah. So now, so now that Florida International University, so we are um, finishing up some work with Sentinel, um, which, so we're right now just trying to figure out. So I, I generally don't do a whole lot of, um, here's a new thing that we want the dog to detect what's in it and make the dog detect it. Because um, I think there's some foundational, there's a lot of foundational questions that still need to be answered on you know, the things that we've been training on for a long time. But fentanyl is really important. So we've been trying to identify um, what we could use to detect fentanyl that maybe is less dangerous than fentanyl itself. So we have some really good work going on with that. Um, And then we're doing, um, we're going back and looking at some of the old research from the 90s that was done with landmines and how vapor is transported through soil and Mm -hmm. um, seeing if we can apply that to, to, um, to homemade explosives. So that's a new project I have going on. Um, uh, that's going on. It's actually a collaboration between myself and um, NRL still. Um, we have, we're also going back in a collaboration with Chapman University, which is a small school in Orange County, uh, California. Mm-hmm. We are um, looking at, we're looking at some of the Settles models, which is the guy who um, looked at the internal and external um, vapor movement in the dog. And we're looking at how that might be changed by the breed of dog and the shape of its face as well, or it's snout, I should say, mm-hmm. as well as by high or low concentrations or different types of compounds. Wow. So that's a really neat study we're doing. Um, and then um, a big project that I'm really proud of that is finally almost done is we have, um, I did with Craig Schultz from the FBI, we have a large book coming out. Um, it's a multi-authored book. It's about 800 pages. Wow. <laughs> Got a little out of control. Got a little <laughs> out of control, I'm not going to lie. Um, but it is a 21-chapter book that covers all um, things related to dogs, um, looking at them as, so it's called Canines, the original biosensor. Um, it is, the idea is, okay, if we think about the dog as an instrument, what do, how would we consider it? How does it, how is considering it like an instrument um, important and what things do we need to consider and then how is it not like an instrument and then so what do else do we need to consider with a dog for instance for a really good example is the effect of um, handler stress on the dog that's obviously not something you have to worry about with an instrument um, so I have Brad Glucksy from um, Ontario Police Ontario Police right yep yes. the Ontario yeah. Provisional Police the OPP as they call it I knew I was missing a letter thank you <laughs> Um, so he wrote a really great chapter on that. Um, I wrote a, a chapter with the folks at Auburn on um, considering um, sensitivity and selectivity, or um, what we also know as specificity, and instruments versus dogs. Um, and then we have a whole lot of chapters on um, on actual applications. So one of our chapters is on um, oil detection for oil spill. Paul Bunker, um, right? With, yeah, with Paul Paul and Ed, yeah, yep. which is actually a project that we are also currently working on at FIU with NRL. 
So nice. a lot, a lot going on, but look out for the book. I'm really excited. It can be pre-ordered right now. Perfect. Um, and I think it's supposed to be, I know, I think it's supposed to be out in late winter, early spring. Okay. Well then here's what we'll do. We'll definitely have you back on when the book actually makes it out to people and they can read it. Um, and we'll make a link in the show notes to purchase that book. Now when this episode airs in a, about another, uh, a short, well, obviously when they're listening to it, it'll be aired. <laughs> but when I put this book out or put this uh, episode out, they'll be able to, uh, find that, uh, link and then order their book. And on top of that, then the other exciting announcement is tomorrow, um, which is right now we are October 27th. So October 28th will be the launch of the uh, new Ford K9 website. And of course, by the time you guys listen to this episode, it'll have already been premiered and out. But one of the great things is I get to have you on as a uh, instructor on that website. And I First, thank you so much for being willing to be an instructor and, and share your knowledge and experience and class materials for the students. So uh, I think there's going to be a lot of materials that you'll have available for students. Uh, I know we were kind of just going back and forth, but you can give a really short version of some of the things that might be there for the uh, students to learn on the Ford K9 website. Yeah, so we're definitely, I'll definitely have a webinar about the basics of odor chemistry. And then we'll do um, some versions of that that are specific to explosives or specific to human scent and human remains or specific to nose work. Um, and then I'd also like to do one on contamination and then probably another one on mixtures themselves. Perfect. No, that's going to be awesome. Well, I know uh, we're obviously on a three-hour difference and it's getting later on your end. So as always, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending your time, you know, talking dogs, research and olfaction and chemistry and all this good fun stuff. Um, you know, it's just awesome that you're out there in our industry sharing this knowledge. I know many people um, get to see you uh, at these various seminars. What's the next seminar you're going to be at? Uh, that's a physically. That's a fantastic question. Um, Australia, <laughs> I think. What is that one? Oh um, yeah, that's October twenty twenty two. We'll all be there together. Me, you, Michelle, Nathan, I believe. Uh, it's gonna be a party, dude. Um, <laughs> all of us in Australia. Then, hey, and it's on that, my birthday, so it's even worse. Oh no way! That's yes, fantastic. Uh, everything. Every, other than that, I'll be at, at American Academy of Forensic Science, and then um, I don't know that any of your listeners would be going to PitCon, which is the Analytical Chemistry Conference. So um, <laughs> Australia might be the next canine-related one. I can't wait to start doing in-person uh, conferences again. I know. <laughs> I, they, I've, I've got hits coming to her I'll be in Orlando when hits is there. Um, also the yeah, blue line. Can okay, perfect. So that'll be August of this coming year. And then yes. I'll be at blue line in April. Are you signed up for blue line or are you one of the instructors there? I don't get to see all the whole list. I'm I didn't. not on the okay. instructor list on blue line. I know Michelle yeah, is. So Michelle will be representing you quite well, I'm sure. So. Uh, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, again, thank you very much for coming on our show and spending your evening talking with me. Um, there's your little applause again for you. <laughs> Oh, it was a pleasure. I love talking dogs. So this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, everybody, that concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense, where... It's okay to be nosy.